Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind and your body and your movement. This episode was with my homeboy, Ryan Glatt. Ryan is a tremendous human being. He is a psychometrist and brain health coach at uh, the Pacific Neuroscience Institute. And in this conversation, we deep dive into what the heck the brain is in the first place, how it is deeply interconnected with the rest of the systems throughout your body, how exercise affects it, how to prevent cognitive decline, depression, all sorts of really fascinating topics in relation to neuroscience. Really fun stuff. Ryan is super smart. Uh, you can tell in the beginning conversations last throughout the rest of it. Um, he is a good friend, known him for several years, and we have similar backgrounds. So we have uh, a lot of rapport. So uh, we get kind of goofy is what I am alluding to. Uh, I hope you guys devour this conversation. If you have interest in learning a little bit about how to breathe more effectively, breath is one of those things that is a key to the function of your autonomic nervous system, the way that you feel. So if you breathe a certain way, it can ramp your nervous system up to make you feel more stimulated like you're drinking coffee. If you breathe another way, it can calm your nervous system down, help with things like sleep, relaxation, digestion, things of the sort. If you want to learn more about that, I created a little video absolutely free for y'all. It can be found at uh, on my Instagram. Uh, it's the link for it is in the bio. It's called the Align Method Masterclass. You can also find it at alignpodcast.com slash masterclass. Thank you guys so much for reviews on iTunes. I read everyone. It means the world. It helps keep me excited to do this thing. And it also helps uh, other people to see this. Apple and Spotify and all those places, they give a dang about reviews. I promise. Here's one from a yogi wondering learn and grow love this podcast the episodes are raw and real making them relatable i think this makes the content more absorbable and uh, absorbable observable and less scary or intimidating aaron always brings something up that checks my passive posture wherever i am listening especially in the car fist bump fist bump emoji thanks so much for that a yogi wandering i appreciate that um I think that's it. Thanks for grabbing the Align Method book. If you want to learn more about these topics, all of the topics are in there. It is a condensed version of most of the things I found interesting on the podcast over the last five years. This is episode 300, I think. That's kind of exciting. Five years, 300 episodes. There might be some type of numerological meaning there. I don't know. Here we go back to the program with my homeboy, Ryan Klein. Bow. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Come back. This is round, round, dose. round, round dose. Solamente. When was the last time we did this? Man, it feels like two years ago. Was it two years ago? I feel like it was two years ago. A lot's changed in two years. A lot has changed. I got that sex change. How'd it go? Oh, man. You look the same. Yep. Well, I didn't have much to talk about before, so. Well, here we are. Here we are. more to talk about. <laughs> Full circle. That's good. Yep. I wanted to, to discuss... The brain. Oh, I'd be happy to. My first question for you, because you know I'm big on bullet point clipboard questions, just going down the list. Absolutely. What is the brain? The brain is an organ. Podcast over. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> it's like, what is the stomach? Yep. Well, right. So where does the brain start? Where does the brain end? What well, is... the brain is part of the central nervous system. Okay. 
there is the peripheral nervous system, there is the central nervous system. The spinal cord and the brain are a part of the central nervous system. So when we look at peripheral nerves or things leaving the spinal cord, going into the muscles and innervating them, that is not part of the brain, but it's part of the nervous system. So the brain's part of the CNS, central nervous system. Hmm. It is one of the most sensitive end organs that we have in our body. And it's complicated and really cool. And we understand a lot more about it, but we still have a lot to learn. How does movement affect the brain? Well, there's movement and then there's exercise. And I think, you know, there's a difference between the two. Hmm. And there's, you know, you might Google exercise in the brain and see these quantitative EEG brain maps that show, oh, here's a person that, you know, walked and their brain after they walked, mm. you know, and we see some of that. But we really, you know, it, there's a big difference between movement and exercise. So there's moving your body and then there's this like structured, formatted exercise with a particular type and all these acute variables, right? So that's what's mostly studied. People aren't yeah. studying the effects of hip hinging on the brain. They're mostly studying the effects of exercise on the brain. Hmm. It doesn't mean that we're not studying the, you know, acute or short-term neurophysiological changes of a walk on the brain. Those studies have been done and it changes brain activity and it modulates it and stuff like that. But most of the exercise research that I'm aware of, well, most of the brain research and exercise research that I'm aware of is looking at saying either acute effect of a single uh, session of exercise and or looking at chronic adaptations in the brain to an exercise regimen, say 12 weeks of aerobic exercise in older adults, you know, something like that twice yeah. a week. So I'm most comfortable talking about the effects of exercise on the brain from that perspective, this structured perspective. And I think most people recognize exercise as that, as it's something that I carve out of my day for anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes, usually in a particular setting, whether it's outside, on a bike, in a gym, and I'm doing a particular thing. So we can start talking very generally, but to ruin the ending, different types of exercise likely have different effects. But there's a lot of mechanisms that they share in terms of having an effect on the brain. Hmm. Is that where you kind of wanted to yeah, start? Yeah, yeah, so I think the first one that's most obvious to people is blood flow. When we move and when we exercise, we typically generate more blood flow and we increase our heart rate more than just resting. So even if I'm going for a walk, it's likely that my heart rate is going to increase more than if I'm just sitting down. Right. With that said, there's something called CBF or cerebral blood flow. And that increase in blood volume to the brain is reflected in the brain. It Perfusion uh, or, or this increase in blood flow starts to go around the different vascular structures that the brain has. And with repeated exercise, particularly aerobic exercise, the brain actually has this ability to increase the amount of vessels in the brain, a process called angiogenesis. So it's pretty cool. It's kind of like the said adaptation on the said principle, specific adaptation on imposed demand. If I'm increasing blood flow with the brain being this very sensitive end organ, it will actually start to generate more vascular networks that are rich and more interconnected because of that. Hmm. So that's one part that uh, I think is really noteworthy and probably makes a lot of sense to people. If it's acute exercise, you're increasing blood flow to various areas of the brain. And the angiogenesis effect would only likely come from repeated exercise, a repeated stimulus that allows for this adaptation. 
So that's one level. And I like to explain the effects of exercise on the brain at three levels. The one I just described as blood flow, we'd put that at the micro level. And the micro level consists of you know, blood flow, neurotransmitters, neurochemicals, hormones, a lot of the things that we often hear about. The macro level would be something that we would see when we look at the brain as an entire organ, either brain structure, like the brain got bigger or the brain got smaller, and that could be parts of the brain like the hippocampus, which we'll talk about getting bigger or smaller, or it could be brain function. The electricity or the neurophysiology of the brain was modified in some way. And then I like to look at things, thirdly, at a behavioral level. This is where we talk about mood and cognition. So cognition are a set of mental functions that we use to interact with our internal and external environments, things like attention, memory, reaction time, verbal fluency, so on and so forth. Um, and then mood, we're aware of what mood is, the, the sense of pleasure, feelings of happiness or lack thereof, things of that regard. So when we talk about the mental health benefits of exercise, mental health outcomes are behavioral outcomes. Cognitive outcomes are behavioral outcomes. So those three levels are the micro, the macro, and the behavioral. Hmm. So we can go back to the micro again. We already talked about blood flow. There's also the release, depending on the type of exercise that you're doing and the specific acute variables. And for those who don't know, when we're talking about acute variables, we mean duration. What is the duration of your session? 20 minutes, 60 minutes. We're talking about the intensity. Is it low, moderate, or high? And we can talk about the differential effects of those potentially. And then we're also talking about modality. Are you doing aerobic exercise, resistance training? Or are you engaging in some sort of skill-based exercise where there's a cognitive and a motor and a visual and a vestibular demand, something like a dance, a sport, a martial art? I think everyone could agree, regardless of their neuroscience knowledge prior or current, that we would say there's probably a difference in the brain's response to these different types of exercise. We know our bodies respond to resistance training, aerobic training differently and therefore our brain does. So that's why even though it's kind of funny like it's an organ, it's part yeah. of your body that also responds to what you do to it. How limited is the research that we have on exercise in the brain? Exercise in the brain because you're forcing mice to run and wheel. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. So cardiovascular exercise yeah. or aerobic exercise because it's easier to measure and track. It is. You know, so how limited is that? It's pretty limited. There's a lot of the stuff that I want to talk about in terms of like the differential effects of different types of modalities of exercise in their acute variables. If you go back and you know look at the end of the research papers, they're all going to say more research is needed. There's at least you know a strong decade of research of aerobic exercise. And it makes sense because when aerobics were a big thing, it's a very easy thing, not easy, but it's a, it's a structured, predictable thing that you can measure. You can put people or rats on a machine. Very and so it's Yeah, it's very science-friendly in yep. that sense. And, you know, functional training was not a big thing 10 years ago, right? There's not going to be this collection of research on, you know, animal flow or new types of yoga or new types of functional training because they're, it, they, they haven't been around for that long. And if there has been, it's likely a smaller study and they're weaker and like, oh, we need more, more research is needed after that research. But I digress. Uh, most of the research done on aerobic exercise in the brain are animal studies. And that's where we get these current hypotheses of what exercise does to the brain. So the blood flow is one of them. The angiogenesis is another. One that's really popular is BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. I know you've heard about BDNF. It's thrown around a lot. And the, the BDNF hypothesis 
of exercise improving the brain is probably the most popular one in media and the one that people understand. It was really popularized by Dr. John Rady in the book Spark. Amazing book, changed my life, got me interested in this stuff. It's like the iliopsoas of neuroscience. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> I really like you. <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. Yeah, it is kind of the ilio. But at BDNF, uh, my, my mentor, Dr. David Merrill, who's my boss at the Pacific Brain Health Center where I work, he says BDNF has staying power. So yeah. it's not something to roll your eyes at, but it's a very popular and proven mechanism. But the translation from animals to humans is still limited because the way you can collect BDNF in humans is not the same as animals. And then the other one is neurogenesis, the creation of new neuronal connections and cells. So the connections would be synaptogenesis. Synapses are the connection between two neurons. And then neurogenesis is the creation of new brain cells, can new you, neurons. Can you touch on a little bit when, when people say, use the BDNF term, I think probably in that same John Randy book, he might have labeled it as like miracle growth. Miracle growth for the brain, right. So what does that actually mean? So BDNF triggers a process that would facilitate neurogenesis and usually angiogenesis as well. So it's a growth factor. It's a protein that's expressed by the body or as a result of the body exercising. Mm. And there's other growth factors. There's irisin. There's nerve growth factor. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of them, actually. Yeah. There's the, the group of them is called myokines. And so it's myokines, growth factors, hormones, and the hormones we've come to understand, like testosterone, testosterone, estrogen, stuff like that, there's receptors for those in the brain. So, you know, once again, it's a very sensitive end organ for just about any growth factor or product of the endocrine system that is present in the body as a result of exercise is likely affected or reflected in the brain in some way. It seems only inevitable that the body will become more and more holistic with time because it's like at one point there was like, okay, the, the, the endocrine system, you mm -hmm. kind of have that dialed down to various different glands and such. And then yeah. it's like, well, your muscles are kind of like a continuation of that endocrine system. Yeah. You know, and the brain with the angiogenesis through movement and like the stimulation, it's it, like, yeah. well, the, for the brain to pump up, and need to develop more blood vessels mm -hmm. and be able to keep in in track with the muscular system. It's like, well, it's, it's it feels to me like it's a continuous system. Yeah, it actually makes a lot of sense when you start to break it down. Yeah. We'll get into that. And as we start to talk about some of the research on different types of exercise, we'll continue to talk about that. It will make more sense as we talk about it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it, it makes sense because biology has trends, mm. right? And it's like, oh, well, that logically makes sense. However, some of the mechanisms are oversimplified in popular media. There's still a lot we don't know about. So going back to this animal research, there's a lot of challenges. For example, if we are going to make rats exercise, simple things like the gender matter in terms of their response to exercise, yeah. how old they are, what species, is it a, a wild type mouse or rat? Or is it, was it raised in a laboratory? That has shown to make a difference. Yep. Was it forced exercise or was it voluntary exercise? Were they literally forcing this rat to exercise beyond its normal behavior and circadian rhythms? Or were they putting a wheel in its cage and saying, exercise whenever you want, and we're going to measure how much exercise you did, kill you, look at your brain, and make inferences, right? Yep. And then also where the wheel was. Were they transferring the rat from its home cage to the exercise cage? 
Were they in a social environment? Were they exercising with other rats? Were they not exercising? Were they raised alone? You know, all these things actually might matter. And some research has, has shown that they do matter. And when we, it's important to consider this because when we take away some of the findings of this research, we have to consider, well, was that rat really stressed out? What kind of environment was that rat in? And there, there's also, you know, aerobic exercise, there's resistance training where they might literally tie a weight to the tail of the rat and make it climb up a cage. And then there's environmental enrichment. Do they have to navigate obstacles sort of like rat ninja warrior? Those are three different conditions. So when we say exercise is good for the brain, that's like saying food is good for you. Yeah. That makes that's not very specific. And so my problem, my soapbox if you will, with how people are talking about brain health right now is they don't get specific about exercise. We basically say exercise is good for the brain. It's a nice side effect. It produces BDNF, good for that, and do it. Just make sure you do it. But then there's this whole population in, in practice, in hype around this like nutrition stuff that's so detailed and so precision medicine oriented. But then exercise is sort of given this generalized, oh yeah, just do it, it's good for you. Mm. And no one's giving exercise that same precision medicine-based attention, that same functional medicine approach, that same, well, what if this pathway did this, might, might this variable make a difference, right? Mm. And so that's my soapbox as a fitness professional, is to say, well, if exercise is one of the most powerful tools that we have in our human toolbox to impact the brain, why would we not get specific about it? And why would we not seek to better understand the mechanisms of different types of exercise and its variables to better impact ourselves and those around us that we may serve, whether you're a fitness professional yourself or your friends or family? And you know, I think we're nutrition obsessed, we're supplement obsessed. Most of us are exercising for the most part. And sometimes people are not, but the knowledge around brain health and exercise is motivating. Maybe they're exhausted from this comparison of their fat content compared to someone such as yourself. And they're like, that's not the motivating factor, but society says it is. But who can't say that they want to improve their brain health, prevent dementia, have a better mood, and be sharper? Yeah, so, Everybody has that in common. So what are some of the principles that would be lacking in the modern say like Western cultures, mm -hmm. movement, nutritional panel what are, for yeah. cognitive health? So for at least people without cognitive impairments or neurological conditions, but even in populations with them, there's just less research for it. What research is pointing to in terms of like what has the most potential to delay cognitive decline the most is what's called a multimodal exercise program. Basically do aerobic training and resistance training. Yeah. And lately, there's more research to suggest motor training, which is synonymous with coordinative training, which might be synonymous with skill-based training. We'll dive into that a little bit more, is also a helpful addition. So in nutrition, we have carbs, fats, and proteins, right? And some people are like anti this one and anti the other, and there's a lot of philosophy and yeah. politics there. For the metaphor in exercise, it would be aerobic training, resistance training, and skill-based training. And I think it's helpful to break things down in that way. You need aerobic stimulus, you need neuromuscular stimulus and musculoskeletal stimulus, and you need skill-based demands. And we can talk about the different mechanisms underlying each one and why they might be helpful for the brain. But even the World Health Organization, in terms of a list of things that they confidently know are going to prevent cognitive decline, exercise is at the top. To be at the top, you have to have such a strong evidence weight 
that you beat out stress and sleep hygiene and supplements. It literally is at the top. But not many people talk about that. And that is a problem. That's like a crime in my mind. It's like we have an epidemic of cognitive decline and mental health issues, but exercise is usually discussed last. And if you were to coach someone around this concept, it's usually the last thing to be considered. And that really, really bothers me to have this free, typically enjoyable resource. And it's not always free, right? There's a huge industry, but you know what I'm saying. It's It's a generally widely available set of tools that can be extremely powerful for our brains. And oftentimes we navigate for a variety of reasons towards a particular modality. Oh, I'm not a weightlifter. I'm a runner. Oh, I'm in the no sweat club. Ironically, as we're in a sauna, right? You know what I'm talking about. People navigate. Oh, I just do yoga, right? Is that a thing? The no sweat club? I've never heard that before. It's like, yeah, people who are really into resistance training, Uh, but they don't want to sweat, right? They don't want to get their heart rate up. That's not always the case. Or people who are obsessed with high intensity interval training. And yes, we do see parallels of people saying all meat, no carbs, you know, this type of thing in in modern society, which we're not going to talk about because it's very charged different day different day different what, time. what i see oftentimes is almost it feels like a neutered version of uh, or sterilized version of fitness you know yeah. so it's like a we consume supplement forms of fitness you know so yeah. you go to the gym and you're essentially treating yourself like a pump you're like okay i need to yeah that's I need right to, i need to get blood through these damn blood vessels yeah. so you go and you pump and you do the motion mm-hmm. you kind of like martyr yourself for for an hour for the sake of getting this blood circulating through your body you're like okay cool i, I did the thing yep what i see lacking is joy yes. play yes um creativity coordination imagination all of those things that are so much harder to measure and yeah. it feels they're qualitative as, elements and it feels as though science you know especially in western culture we really want to hang our hat on science and if it's not double blind empirically you know all, mm-hmm. all the things and it's like okay well it's just nonsense well there actually is science for those some of those things some of those elements right but no one talks about it, yeah. right? So let's talk about skill-based exercise or coordinative exercise. So we talked about some of the mechanisms that might underlie improvements to the brain because of aerobic exercise, blood flow, BDNF. We didn't really talk about neurotransmitters, but healthy neurotransmitter balance is in there, creates new neurons, creates angiogenesis, and can positively therefore affect mood and cognition, right? But you're not necessarily challenging your cognitive abilities directly. Most aerobic exercise, let's talk about a recumbent exercise bike, sitting down and being on a bike, with the exception of some of these more connected fitness solutions that have screens and Pelotons and stuff like that. Most of the time, cardio machines are not cognitively demanding. Agree? Yeah. If you were to learn a new skill, like but could push, tennis. could pushing yourself beyond a zone that you thought you could have gone, would that start to create some cognitive demand? Well, that's intensity. And so if you're tracking intensity and you're like, oh, I have to be at this level, this level. Yeah, you have to keep track of that. There's more cognitive demand. So it's what, almost like a meditation in a sense. Like I think there is for something some to people. people that just want to grind and gruel and just be able to, you know, I want to run a hundred mile yeah. race. So there's it's the like, default well, just... mode network, which is like this sense mind wandering sense of self thing and exercise is valuable for that yeah i'm not saying all exercise should be cognitively demanding because most people when they exercise it's usually before or after a long duration of cognitive demands aka your nine to five workload not a lot of people want to engage themselves cognitively but running is much different than the cognitive demands or the psychometric demands of say tennis Mm -hmm. right they're very very different 
Both can be enjoyable. Both can get your heart rate up. But something like tennis, for example, or any martial art or any dance or any sport of any kind will have a set of more explicit cognitive demands. So, you know, RPE, rate of perceived exertion, exertion yeah. 10 being the hardest, one being the easiest. There's actually something called the NASA Task Load Index, where they have one to 10 scales of cognitive demand, frustration, perceived enjoyment, perceived success. This is a real scale. It's got NASA on it, for God's sakes. Yep. You know, so that sounds really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we can you know, use RPE to measure the individual workouts or the average RPE across our exercise. That is helpful. But also cognitive demand. On a scale of 1 to 10, how cognitively demanding was that exercise or was that workout or is your exercise program on average throughout the week? I think that's a helpful question to ask because you, you said something interesting that people supplement with the gym. They supplement with this vascular response because it's missing from their environment yeah. as naturally it might have been, right? But I also think we naturally need to supplement these cognitive demands in our movement. And what play and creativity and sports and dance and martial arts all have in common is some sort of set of cognitive demands. Now, if you do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for your whole life, is that all you need? Well, there's different nutrients. Do you only need vitamin D? Do you only need vitamin B12? No, you need a bunch of different micronutrients. So I'd say variety in terms of cognitive demands and skill sets is probably warranted. But then we also have resistance training, right? Now, some people don't do resistance training. I highly recommend it because research is, it, it's, resistance training is starting to have its moment in the brain research right now. Some studies are even comparing the cognitive or, or certain aspects of the neurophysiological responses to resistance training compared to aerobic training, for instance. In some studies, I can think of one that was in mild cognitive impairment in older adults, found it to be superior. Now, how cognitively demanding can resistance training be? Well, you can be on a machine or you can do some really functional stuff that is pretty cognitively demanding. For most resistance training that's out of a you know, a very fixed machine, it does require some skill. If you don't pay attention, you could really get hurt. A lot of people say watching their form, for instance. Yeah. But look at functional training right now. Clubs and vipers and well, kettlebells. What and about the skill of strength and the ability for you to be able to activate, engage, and harness a greater number of motor units within the muscles? That's corticospinal activation. So it's basically the cortico or the cortical aspects of the brain to the spine, to the neuro, you know, to the muscular system. So, cortical spinal activation is where the central nervous system will activate and then send a signal. So, intensity of well, this isn't true for all things, but you know, for for simplicity's sake, you know, there's the the harder the neuromuscular intensity, typically the greater cortical spinal response. Yeah. Now, that doesn't always mean it's super cognitively demanding. For example, if you had a lot of weight to change direction or have a sequence of movements is really demanding. Of course, there are sequences to an Olympic squat or any Olympic lift, right? But there's a couple aspects of skill I want to talk about to contextualize this better. There's three phases of skill learning, and there's two types of skill. The two types of skill are open skill and closed skill. A closed skill is something that's very predictable. It's time-bound. You know what to expect. The best example would be going to a gym, which is really hard to do right now, but stick with me, going to a gym, sitting down in a leg extension machine and say, do three sets of 10 at this, this speed. That is so close skill. I couldn't come up with a better close skill because you know what to expect. Three sets of 10, the time and the spatial orientation, it's all fixed. 
Yeah. It's not unpredictable. It's very predictable. But that's not bad. That's most exercise neuroscience research because that's what's reproducible, right? And that stuff has been shown to be extremely valuable. But what we're talking about is more open skill, unpredictability, dual tasking, responding to movement, moving objects and persons, right? Open skills are more unpredictable and more ecologically dynamic. Hmm. And this is what's, and this is a continuum. So what we're talking about with certain types of weightlifting might be somewhere in the middle, right? Yep. But if I'm doing stuff with clubs and kettlebells, that's all three planes of motion and stuff like that, that might be more towards the open skill. So we probably want a balance of open and closed skills. And it just so happens that most open skills also happen to be more cognitively demanding. Now, I t uh, earlier I talked about these three phases of skill development. When you're learning a new skill, it's usually hard. It's usually a little awkward. It can be a little bit more frustrating, right? This is the cognitive phase of motor learning. Then there's the associative phase. Things start to smooth out for you a little bit, but you're certainly nowhere near mastery. And then the automatic phase or autonomous phase of motor learning. So the cognitive, associative, and autonomous phases of motor learning. The earlier you are in the motor learning process, the more cognitively demanding it is. So what do people do? What does our society do? We chase mastery. But at the end of mastery is lower cognitive demands because it's more automatic, yeah. right? Now, I would say in a culture where we are seeing extremely high rates of dementia, cognitive decline, burnout, people, very young people complaining subjectively of cognitive issues, we might need to supplement our society with more cognitive load. So instead of a person being good at dance or a person being good at tennis, it's actually the losers that win. Because those who are new to novel skills, right? New is novel. There's going to be greater cognitive demands. You're getting a much more potent response out of that yeah. cognitively than if you were just good at something. And I feel like people are good at handstands and their sport and they like, they're showing other people how good they are at their skill. And there's a lot of people out there who won't dance because of the risk of embarrassment or they're comparing be, themselves, hide right? Behind your strengths. Yeah. yeah. And I actually think that the awkwardness, the frustration, the effort, that is what will likely facilitate, hypothetically, the greatest neuroplastic response. Yeah. And so we, we might be lacking that. What are your thoughts on, uh, I think the term in relation to this would still be embodied cognition of the way that you move af affects the way that you think and the way that you feel. Mm -hmm. Embodied cognition from the way that I, I know it is like you're holding a cold cup and it kind of, you perceive people as being more... Oh, right. Yeah, there's a whole stuff. psychology and philosophy Holding to this stuff. Holding a heavy clipboard, you perceive people as this and that. So yeah. You have this, this kinesthetic sense that impacts the way that you perceive the world. That's more of the, the philosophy and psychology of the body-brain connection. Yeah. I'm not so good at that other stuff. However, I will say that when I was doing body work, it was uh, Guy Claxton's book, oh, I'll think of it, that really got me into embodied cognition. Well, the reason, the reason I'm saying is I, I wonder if... Intelligence in the flesh is oh, his book I and it's it's all about embodiment and embodied cognition. Cool. It's really good and I think, you know, to solve we have to solve the mind body problem and you see a lot of people catching up with this especially in fitness and physical therapy and rehab is, you know, people coming about this, you know, therapeutic neuroscience education for people in pain and people understanding pain better because of the brain. But I'm not so much talking about the psychology 
of how your brain and body work with each other and therefore perceive the world in that sense or a philosophical sense. What I am mostly talking about is what how can we leverage exercise for better brain health, which in turn, ironically, does allow you to interact with the world better. Cognition's Certainly. defined as your ability to interact with the world, including others around you. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I find it interesting. I, I think we like to place labels on people, including ourselves, and we like to be a part of groups. I think that comes back to you know tribalization. Mm -hmm. We want to be a part of a clique, a group, a crew. So I'm a yeah. crossfitter, or I'm a swimmer, or yep. I'm an archer, or whatever you do, rock climber. And I think that we within those various different dogmatic groups, the tendency would be to be condescending upon other groups and, yes. and feel like that we are pedestalized and we are the best. Mm -hmm. And I wonder with, it, it seems to me in my experience with movement and the body and just paying attention over the years, yep. it seems to me that, that different movement modality groups express different personality types and even oftentimes like yeah, epistemological. Yeah, perspective and therefore they the attract those people. So that is right. my that is my question because I'm I'm not mm -hmm. here on the Alliance podcast. I'm interested <laughs> in exploring like the yeah. philosophical whatever. I wonder does that attract those people specifically, or is there kind of a combination where perhaps it does attract, and then also that movement informs the way that people think and feel. Mm. Does that make sense at all? It does. Yeah. I think I'm following you. So like a, so, so, so to be more, more specific, like a linear runner, mm -hmm. they just do linear A to B, boom, boom, boom. Like that's, that might be, perhaps that person would be a better like type A personality type person. Whereas say like a capuista or somebody like that, or yep. like a creative rock climber type person, mm. they might be a little bit more a, a creative expressive type person, mm -hmm. you know, type B kind of more. Well, it's a chicken to the A conversation. And right? you had, you had the, you helped me with one of the, the references that you had me add in my book was the cursive writing. Mm -hmm. And so having people go through flow emotions. I don't know where, where that came from at this it point. It was a small, interesting, but weak study. But weak study. But yeah. but, but nonetheless, but very interesting. I think a lot yeah. of, yeah, I mean, I think per, I would just be interested to continue following those, those yeah. cookie crumbs and see how it does, does go anywhere. How does movement modify perhaps our expression or even personality, although personality in most cases is quite stable across the lifespan, right? Yeah. We, we don't have dramatic changes in our personality. But, you know, I think certain people based on their experiences or their perceptions of what they want to be good at, or maybe they just ended up in that group, who knows? I don't know if it changes them as a person, but I think it might exercise certain behaviors more than others, if that makes sense. So I don't know if it's a type A person or as much as a person gets to go to a boxing class and punch the shit out of a bag or a person, yeah. and that is helpful for them. Yeah. If that makes sense. What are your thoughts on convergent thinking versus divergent thinking and the way that you are moving, impacting that? So mm. say if you go take a walk and you're looking out into the trees and right. maybe there's somebody playing a violin or something like that and it like moves you in a certain way, mm. that perhaps would lend itself to more outside of the box divergent type thinking. Whereas if you're sure. sitting doing a Scantron, maybe you out there dancing to some, somebody's Why fiddle. Oh, just like ABC test <laughs> right, type right, thing. Scantron right. just accessing. I just haven't thought of a Scantron in a long mm, people time. People do them. You know, but, yeah. but like acce accessing memories that are like, cool, yeah. like you studied for the test. Was it Abe Lincoln, right, Thomas right. Edison, or Ben right. Franklin? It's like, oh, okay, cool. That's saying. just information that I have that's I conversion information. Right. You know, so that would be a point where I think that that's, that feels like a more anchored place to move from with that kind of like, mm -hmm. does your movement affect your thoughts and feelings? Yeah. So here's what I could say about that is... For simplicity's sake, let's name three functional brain networks. And, and 
functional brain networks are different nodes or areas of the brain that create this set of, sort of intersecting set of highways of brain activity. And so you may have heard of one of them, the default mode network. Sure. Really lots of talk about the default mode network in the context of psychedelics. It's, you know, thought to, you know, once again, oversimplistically be your place where your sense of self or mind wandering network. And then the central executive network is like you're engaged in a task. It's executively demanding. And executive functions include planning, organization, short-term memory, a complex attention. And so there's the CEN, central executive network. You're, this is like your brain at work, basically. And then there's the default mode network, the brain on a walk, for instance, or the brain in a flow state or what, whatever. And then there's also the salience network that might modulate the switching between the two. And so when a person goes on a walk, they might have been in their central executive network, their CEN, all day for eight hours. And then they want to engage their salience network to switch to the default mode network, which might come after a few minutes of walking. And they start to have this mind-wandering, more sensory experience. And of course, there's a sensory network, as if it wasn't complicated enough, right? And so to modulate these networks, which might partially explain states of being, right? Or states of thinking, divergent thinking, for instance, or I'm, in a cer- I'm expressing a certain behavior or a characteristic, that this sort of functional brain network style of thinking might explain what you're trying to get at. And I think different activities might engage a different profile of these functional brain networks and therefore potentially have a different behavioral response. Yeah. Is that too clinical? No, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. I want to take a moment and thank a vital mineral referred to as magnesium. It is one of the only mineral supplements or supplements in general that I will actually purchase with my own hard-earned monies. And the reason for that is it is largely missing from modern soil. This has been the case since around the 1950s. And when you end up do purchasing magnesium as a supplement, oftentimes it lacks all of the forms. So there's seven different forms of magnesium that you ideally would be consuming. Those would naturally be occurring in some robust soil that we we don't have because we are monocropping that stuff and we're extracting nutrients. So something that is a wise thing to do is incorporate some magnesium into your life. Literally one of the only supplements that I'll actually procure for myself. So we teamed up with BioOptimizers. They are a fantastic company. I trust them emphatically, and they have a great product called Mag Breakthrough that has all seven different types of magnesium, and uh, you can get yourself 10% off by going to magbreakthrough.com slash podcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash podcast. I almost didn't spell through correctly, um, I made it though. I made it through. Magnesium is a big deal. It's supportive for over 150 different processes in your body, including fat metabolization. Uh, it's very helpful with calming the nervous system, helpful with muscle repair. Uh, I take it every night before I go to bed and I really like the stuff. I stand behind it. Magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast for 10% off of your purchase. Here we go back to the scheduled programming. What are your thoughts on facial gestures and and postures impacting perception of the world so like the pencil study where you Mm -hmm. hold a pencil and you smile right you perceive things as being funnier they put a was it they put a golf 
T in your brow and made yep. you contract they don't, it. So they don't like nail it into bitch, your skull, bitch face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jesus' crucifixions were in the wrist, not the hand. So oh. all those photos that you see, the hand wouldn't hold the bones. It would just oh. go up through the, the carpals. Oh. Whereas the wrist, if you got it up, or sorry, the phalanges, the, the wrist would actually be able to secure it by going through the carpal bones. That's good to know. Side tangential subject. Did you want to talk about how he potentially felt because of that? Or? No, no, okay. no. Just because you were right. talking about okay. smacking things into my head. Um, right. You know, so, so what are your thoughts on that? You know, so that's a little bit more microscopic than like yeah. running a marathon. Yeah. But instead about, of this like gross motor activation of, you know, larger it's muscle like micro groups. Motor. Yeah. It's very small movements in the face impacting how you might feel. I actually have no idea. I don't follow that research super closely, mm. but I am aware that there's more research, you know, people injecting Botox into the face to create a smile and there that actually is correlated with happier feelings and you have the Amy yeah. Cuddy research of puffing your chest out of this, you know, these little hacks that might help you achieve a transient mood state. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I think what's more interesting <laughs> to me is for people struggling day to day with mental health issues. Yeah. Or just want those wanting to increase their mental well-being. What is the exercise prescription? But that being said, uh, sometimes perhaps it could take like a thin edge of a wedge in order to get people moving into having Maybe. The, the joie de vivre to get mm -hmm. their asses off the couch right. and, and do some Zumba. So if you you know shove a pencil into your mouth and force yourself to smile, it could make you happy. And or get a you... get a facial, get a cranial sacral session, massage your jaw a little bit, sure. maybe do some eye exercises and open and close your brows and kind of just stretch yourself out of that chronic resting bitch well, face. Well, yes. Let me switch myself out of clinical and just speak from personal experience. At the end of a long day, I typically don't feel like exercising. Mm -hmm. Can you relate? Yeah, sure. I'm okay. I think yeah. a lot of people can relate. So how do we get ourselves to feel good so we do something else that makes us feel good? Yeah. Sort of this habit stacking type totally. of thing. Yeah. So it might be a trigger. It, usually, or more reliably, it's an environmental trigger. Oh, I'm going to wear my workout shoes to work so after work I already I'm changed into them or I have an accountability partner or yeah. I have a video that I follow at this time. You know, we, we can talk about behavior change because if you can't achieve the behavior, you're unlikely or not going to get the benefit, mm -hmm. right? So I agree that, you know, modifying smaller muscles to get bigger muscles moving, that's an interesting prospect. That is a possibility. I think for certain people, different types of behavior change would work better than others. So if you want to get yourself to smile or massage your face so you feel like you have more energy or in a better mood state and that gets you to move, that's great. For some people, they're not that internally accountable and they need a community or a separate individual or something scheduled. So there's external accountability and internal accountability. Yep. I don't think it's so black or white, but I do think that people tend to, to migrate towards one of one or the other. Are they more internally accountable or are they more externally accountable? If I'm externally accountable and you leave it up to me to exercise to the proper prescription, I probably won't. Mm -hmm. Right? Same way. Yeah. So yeah. we might be externally accountable, which is the power of community and the power of joy and movement and the power of joy in community. And also, I think, you know, what you're talking about in terms of potentially modifying our micromusculature might parallel or assist with that. I think it's possible. Yeah. I think it's just we have each camp like that like I, we were talking before this like i'm very suspicious of my own cognitive biases mm -hmm. like if i think something the more passionate i am about th a thing mm -hmm. the more my suspicion starts to rise where i think i'm getting clouded by my own research that's my a own good attention. mentality to have if we were to seek novelty for in instance which i think you do 
Mm. You tend to seek novelty. Super ADHD. Yeah, I'm like a blue belt in a lot of things, including jujitsu, literally. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm not. Well, I said same <laughs> in terms of I seek novelty, but I have. I'm not. I'm a yellow belt in Krav Maga. There you go. I learned how to knee Just people in the nuts, the nuts like yeah. for weeks. Yeah. That was a while ago. Anyway. I'm probably a blue belt in, in certain video games, so yeah, I got right. that on you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Is there some type of movement, like neurofeedback, something or another, that I could perhaps start to train in order to make me more engaged to go deeper into various different topics or subjects or, or, or practices? So are can you incorporate saying, movements to help you learn? Yeah, to help me, not okay. just... Not just Yes, but a specific type of learn, almost like like an Ayurveda for movement. You know, it's like well, I want specifically the outcome that I'm looking for is like what kind of oil or you know okay. whatever can I choose? Oh, what I kind see. of movement yeah. can I choose that will get me into the place of like oh I see you're not big on completing tasks. You really like getting things started. You get super excited. You're inspired, and then once you kind of get the hang of it, you kind of move. Okay, on to so if we're else. talking about task initiation, yeah, that could be considered. A part of executive functions. So one might say, if I struggle with executive functioning, such as organization, planning, task initiation, certain types of emotional regulation, so on and so forth, it's hard because there's a lot of things under executive functions. What sort of acute exercise intervention can I utilize to transiently improve executive functions? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So if I have trouble initiating a work-based task, there's been some research on this. It's kind of debated. You know, there's more confident answers in chronic exercise than there is acute, right? So I might be more interested in saying, okay, what do you need to do for 12 weeks to improve executive functioning, right? But I think it's a good question what you're asking. If I'm in a state where I'm having trouble initiating a task, is there a certain series of movements or a type of exercise that I can adhere to that would improve that perhaps? And the answer is that we don't know the exact answer. But we're finding that several things could help. And when I say we, I'm not doing this research, but just I've looked at the acute effects and its effects on executive functioning and stuff like that. More research is needed for that particular area. But for acute responses to exercise, there's these neurobiological responses from a variety of different types of exercise that might be helpful. So if we just said, let's get our heart rate up, Some research says that's enough to increase certain types of executive functions. I don't know about task initiation, but things like impulse control, for instance, or types of attention. Task initiation is a bit of a behavioral cognitive function than it is a testable cognitive function, if that makes sense. So I would basically survey you and say on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst, one being the best, how much are you struggling with task initiation at this moment in time? You do some sort of exercise and then you say, how would you rate it now? Hmm. Right? So for you, it might be something like, oh, I have trouble with task initiation because maybe I'm exhausted. I've been focusing on something else for too long. Let me go for a walk. So now we're switching from that central executive network to the default mode network. So it might be a walk. For someone who is sub-activated, air quotes, right? We might need to increase brain blood flow. Maybe I need to sprint for five minutes, or I need to do squats or something like that, or I need to lift weights. I think the aerobic exercise is the most studied when it comes to the effects of exercise on acute executive functioning. So I think most people would say, do some aerobic exercise, then do the thing. And that actually might enhance learning. Now, if you did aerobic exercise while trying to learn the thing, the learning effect would not be as strong. You are distracted. But ironically, what we were talking about earlier is dual tasking, is doing something moving while thinking. 
But that wouldn't be for learning in an academic setting. That would be to get cognitive load into your movement. So does that answer your question? Kind of. My question was, was more geared, not so much task initiation, but mm-hmm. more task maintenance continuation. Okay. But I was just more, more, and that's why I was saying more that like using like the, the Ayurvedic metaphor or something that's a little sure. bit more, you know, someone that asks you about your feelings and your relationships and all that stuff. Is yeah. there some type of movement medicine that we could apply to somebody uh, that has certain type of personality kind of like dysfunctions of sorts like could we could we go that deep with it or is it pretty much i think i'm going like way out into the woods with that it's i think just so more i, like I appreciate thought. your affinity towards typing and kind of having if this then that type of i think we all want some of that i will say uh either i don't know or no <laughs> but I, I figured you wouldn't have a response it's yeah, more just a general it's a great idea thought. to think on of like could we be that specific it's like oh yeah you need i will say that based on personality people tend to select certain exercise regimens yeah for example and we were talking about this earlier a little bit but for example people who are really type a like you know high functioning executives that want to go 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 they typically are selecting modalities that are also extremely effortful mm-hmm. on the intensity scale. High-intensity interval training, tennis, working out with a personal trainer, and they think more is better. Yep. When And we know the musculoskeletal rationale why that might not be the case. But for that individual, it might be beneficial to incorporate walking, mind-body exercise, which can include yoga, tai chi, qigong, mindful movement of any sort, breath work, etc., into their exercise program because we want a balance of low and high intensity. Yep. So there are individuals that I've coached where I've sensed those trends that those people in the American, well, even not not just American, it's anyone in the entrepreneurial sense thinks go, go, go is better, yep. especially with the glorification of high intensity interval training, which isn't bad. How would you describe, this might be a pretty again like deep question but how would you describe the 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 neurochemical experience of that person that is addicted to go 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 it might be you know dopamine seeking you know behavior that's also very oversimplistic but i would equate it to almost burnout Mm. um you know metabolically mTOR that mTOR pathway is activated but also if these people or, or we could be a little bit more basic and just say autonomic nervous system response. You're constantly in that sympathetic arousal state. Well, there's various areas of the brain that are very sensitive to cortisol. Um, And so the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for these executive functions, hippocampus responsible for learning and memory, the amygdala, these are all very cortisol sensitive areas of the brain. And in addition, right, what I'm writing my um, dissertation on right now is the effects of different types of exercise and its variables on inflammatory responses, so neuroinflammation. So we all know that, or we have probably heard that exercise is good for inflammation and inflammation, you know, circulating inflammatory biomarkers or cytokines can cross the blood-brain barrier and to the brain. And there's some thoughts that all mental health issues and neurodegenerative issues have this neuroinflammatory uh, context in common. Yeah. So I found a couple studies writing my dissertation finding that a a high-intensity aerobic exercise will bring down or regulate certain inflammatory biomarkers, but actually increase other ones. One of them that it might increase is IL-6 or interleukin-6, which is an inflammatory biomarker that actually increased from high-intensity interval training. That could impact stress. So we might actually make individuals more stressed. I know it makes sense, but I think it's interesting that these different inflammatory profiles might dictate our exercise prescription. And so where I would 
venture to suggest mm-hmm. that you could actually prescribe a movement remedy for that person that is stuck in that neurochemical state mm-hmm. slash hormonal slash everything whatever it is yeah, all, yeah all, whatever all, the neurobiological all the, all the systems yeah so they have is, that yeah. that that concoction that recipe is they're kind of auto set on that mm-hmm. say okay i think what would be really going to be uncomfortable and challenging for you but actually quite medicinal like you got to swallow the pill yeah is stillness Yes, exactly. And so or mind-body exercise. So now all of a sudden, this there's this, this, because of the physical movement expression of stillness, it forces that person's neurochemical concoction to start to alter to shift with, a little with, bit. with time. That would be correct. And yeah. so I suspect that perhaps that is a very obvious, I think that would be very measurable and you could, mm-hmm. you could clearly make that case. In one way I, or another. I wonder yeah. if those, you know, the pendulum swinging from hyperactive to complete stillness, and we see this neurochemical expression on both sides, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's an in-between within that spectrum, kind of uh, like Paul Ekman's 10,000 yes. facial expressions. Okay, okay, cool. We have the obvious smile, you know, and the eyes, and that we have a frown. Okay, cool. Two facial expressions. Like, well, Paul Ekman would suggest, but which you guys can go back and listen to that podcast episode from like maybe a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. would suggest that there's at least 10,000 different facial expressions, all with specific meanings that he mm-hmm. actually pointed out and defined. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if perhaps bet- really between yeah. that spectrum of complete utter stillness to hyperactivity and drilling yourself into adrenal fatigue, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a whole language that's kind of undiscovered. I don't know about language. Well, you know what I mean. But I, I, I think I do know what you mean. Like the alphabet hasn't been put together. It's like a right. ancient Sumerian. Yeah. We're like, it's there. We know. We just, we, it's, we we're putting the pieces together to be able to figure it out. Yeah. So we could, you know, try to theorize what well, we already did with that one individual on the sympathetic side. Yeah. People that are too parasympathetic. I actually yeah, exactly. meet Maybe them all the time. Maybe you need to hone in your focus. Yeah. Well, Maybe I'm you mostly... need to change your breathing practice. Maybe more inhalation. Maybe yeah. put yourself into a little bit more of a stressed state intentionally. And when I coach older adults, especially older women... They've never incorporated resistance training. They just did this light toning, weightlifting, and walking, and they think, like, that's exercise, right? I'm like, well, it's movement. and it's It may not be intense enough. Let's lift heavy and yeah. get these older adults to lift. And research shows that helps and boosts brain health mm-hmm. significantly. And so, of course, it depends on the person. It depends on the intervention. But I agree with you. It's got to be somewhere in the middle. And actually, if you're just in the middle and you're only doing, say, moderate intensity exercise, a couple days a week, you might need that hit. Yeah, so that's actually, we're, we're saying it in different ways, but we are saying, I think, the same thing. Well, it seems like the, the, the body, mind, immune system, everything thrives on adaptation. And once you get into more of a plateaued state with anything, atrophy will eventually manifest because mm-hmm. what your brain does really well is it conserves energy. Right. And once it gets to the point where it realizes that it can just hit cruise control, it's going to hit cruise control. Mm-hmm. And so the moment that you throw a new turn in, you're like, oh God, pump the brakes, clutch, da, da, da. Right. And it starts to learn and adapt. And Say know. neurometabolic variability, for instance. We know the value of metabolic variability. Right. Go high, go low, go in the middle. It's yeah. all beneficial. Don't be in just one. Yeah. Right. This is actually likely impacted or, or at least reflected in research on the brain in terms of exercise, right? Hmm. So I agree with you. I think we need to be thinking about variability. And that's essentially what I'm pitching here. Yeah. Um, and I didn't come up with that myself. I learned it from the Institute of Motion, Michelle Dalcourt, Derek Price, these really smart guys that are probably leaders in the fitness industry. And they've created these frameworks for variability. And they're called four quadrants. So on the y-axis, they'll have low intensity to high intensity. On the x-axis that they will have it's intersecting so it's a kind of a cross so low to high intensity 
And on the other spectrum would be um, continuous or interval training, right? So we have high-intensity interval training, high-intensity steady state, or low-intensity interval training, doing you know chores or going about in your garden, or, or low-intensity steady state, going for a walk. All of them are important. Yeah. For movement, we have things that are very linear and things that are very three-dimensional. And we have things that are weighted and things that are unweighted, right? So all four of those things might be important, for instance. So when I heard this approach to human health, this variability approach, the past three or four years, I've just been really looking at, well, how might this variability be helpful for brain health? But that's kind of more or less what I'm finding. Some of the variables like intensity or the type of exercise, some of those variables are more lacking than others in the research. But I'm starting to see these trends in the research showing that, yes, this variability of intensity, modality, duration, frequency does impact brain health in different ways and therefore positively. So it seems like a, like a, a takeaway would be with regularity, put yourself in uncomfortable situations of mm -hmm. various sorts. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that would include even feeling maybe anxious about doing like a public speaking presentation, something mm -hmm. like that, if that would go into cognitive load. I would, I would imagine it would, it would absolutely. Perhaps. But In the context of exercise, I'd say the best takeaway is if we talk about aerobic exercise, resistance training, and skill-based, or motor or coordinative, whatever we want to call that third category, which one are you not doing enough of? Hmm. And just do that more. Yeah. Not but, but for exclusively. But for cognitive development, because there's like the, like the Nun study that I know you're familiar with where... Cognitive they, reserve was very high. Yeah. So when they were 22 engaged. years old on average, they wrote a, a thing, autobiography right. about themselves mm -hmm. and based off of how uh, clear and in depth and how, what was the word they used in the thing? It was like vivacity. The vivacity <laughs> that they had of their, their writing yeah. was an indication that essentially they had like their neuronal matrix of thought was more well-developed expanded upon so they had more branches to potentially slowly pare down they were renaissance woman you know not can you know referring to the time period yeah. but yeah they but hold on but hold on but mm -hmm. the reason i'm saying is, is is if we are looking at like how do we prevent cognitive decline which i think is at least a part of this conversation so that's something that it's like well they probably weren't the greatest movers per se they, they did some exercises and they probably did some push-ups can you or imagine whatever. nuns doing crossfit yeah That'd exactly be yeah it'd be awesome actually but but it'd probably be a great youtube video it'd probably do very well so those nuns they had this intellectual insulation of sorts you know that wasn't just purely created from more exercise right and so i wonder with um in the example of like the public speech, just doing something that makes you uncomfortable, mm -hmm. just making your bra your brain in, in uh, Spanish to say uh, uh, rumpa cabeza, like something that like, breaks the brain, like anything that you are putting your any situation you're putting yourself Let's in, say it's like, it feels like it's rattling. Effortful brain. novel learning, yeah, perhaps of all sorts. So that has been shown to contribute to cognitive reserve. Yeah. So definitely, I would say there's certain philosophies of approaching that where it's like oh, do something new every and that could actually be taken and misunderstood and misapplied where and also you don't want it to be overtly stressful yeah. either but yes learning novel skills and engaging in enriched environments cognitively without the idea of exercise yeah that that would contribute to cognitive reserve in a positive manner hmm. cognitive stimulation cognitive training socialization good diet good sleep stress management and of course exercise and I think what the opportunity is, is how can we layer on those things, yeah. right? So how can we incorporate socialization and cognitive demand into our exercise? Sure. That's, yeah, absolutely. Can we stack it that way? Yeah. And a, a hypothesis would be maybe there's a more 
pronounced or powerful response on cognitive reserve if that were the case. And research is starting to hint at this, that people that enjoy their movement get more benefit cognitively and psychologically out of it than when they don't. People who move in community or with music, it tends to have an impact on cognition. So I find that interesting. If we're saying exclusion of movement, well, even going back to your example, is public speaking movement? There's some micro Certainly, movement there, so right? Much. You have you're, to you're moving a crowd. You know, you're 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 exercising your capacity for empathy, your facial expressions, demanding. your postural patterns. Like you, if you're a good public speaker, it's because you're speaking with your toes and your hands, and you know, you're everything. Yeah, you know, your heart. Cognitively, you have to know what's coming next. You know, memory in terms of memorizing. All and sorts you have of to, things. and you have to be able to put yourself outside in order to be a really effective public speaker. You almost have to allow the spaciousness to enter into another contentious topic of a flow state. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're in that place where it's almost like you are a, a open vessel, yeah. you know, and you're just almost being spoken through, which I'm sure you've had that experience lots of times. I've had that, that experience lots of times where I'm almost like, I don't even know what I'm I just, about. I just yeah. kind of went up and it just, it felt like the, it was almost like the crowd said it or, or something improv, else said it. Yeah. For instance. And it was right. just like, I went up, I had kind of a plan. I went off of that plan and it ended up being way better had I stuck to the plan because it felt like I and was, people are I like, was oh, moved. that was so good. You're like, I don't know what happened. And it's so like, it, there's, yeah. I think there's some magic in that place of once again, this goes into a place that's very hard to study probably you know in a controlled mm-hmm. clinical setting mm-hmm. but the the magic of getting out of the way of yourself and going into improvisation i think there's probably a whole nother neurological layer there no i think people actually have started to study the effects of you know improv training on creativity and maybe cognition i'd like to look into it actually yeah that is valuable yeah, yeah that is valuable there's layers to this shit layers upon layers <laughs> We're just like looking at the cheese mm. and like the, there's like 16 other layers. Like I like to get to those, but there's a lot of layers. There's a lot know? of layers. Yeah. How um, do you got to get out of here? I don't want to take up too much of your time. We've probably no, been talking really. for maybe like an hour or something, but I think this is just such great stuff. And we go like another 15, 20 minutes sure. or something like that. I wonder for you. So I grew up people listening to this maybe not that it you know matters nobody probably really yeah, gives a shit about, about what's you. going on with me but i i was really obsessed with bodybuilding and such as a, as a way of kind of like insulating myself out mm-hmm. of like deep insecurity mm-hmm. and so that was kind of a place that i came from i wonder if you have any of that with like increasing your intellectual robusticity yeah. as a means of protection in my childhood you mean yeah is that my phone it might be popping off my shit's popping what's up <laughs> what's popping off dog People hear how I actually talk in real life. They'll be like, I am never listening to this guy oh, again. Oh, I'm leaving. Everything okay? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. I just want to make it's sure all, It's okay. all, I appreciate your care. Okay. Yeah, really so worried. do you feel like that's a thing for you? Do you think you're like, shit, I got to pump up my Well, my I was a fat muscle. kid. I, I was you a had fat a big kid. concussion too. You got all fucked up. I had a concussion. And your mom had a leg amputation. She did. You they some, weren't your, connected. Your but childhood was, yeah, but you had like some. Well, that was when I was in like late high school, early college. My mom had these health issues. Was it while you were home? Yeah, I was home. I was going to community college, That's and she had deal, kidney disease, leg amputation. Fuck. She had gestational diabetes, so there was a lot of like me blaming myself for giving her this lifelong struggle with diabetes. Oh. And Why af- would you have blamed yourself? Because it's gestational, meaning she got it after she gave birth to me and got it as a result of the birthing process. And you took ownership for that? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, that was really tough, uh, especially because she died because of it. Oh, my um, God. That's actually what really got me into like physical therapy is watch. It's while I was a personal trainer and I'll get, I guess, into how I got there. But, um, and I was like, man, I want to be a therapist. Cause I saw how she was 
how, how this therapist was with her, mm. helping her rehab from this, you know, with this new prosthetic leg, right? Yeah. So that was tough. That was very tough. That was probably the hardest thing in my life. And after she died, the first thing I did was go back to work at 24-Hour Fitness as a trainer and just make calls to get people in for fitness assessments. And I was, it, it was a couple years later that I did more healing around it and stuff like that. And um, very challenging traumatic situation to see your mom go through that stuff. But it's also what inspired me to get into health and prevention and rehabilitation. And I know she, she's digging what I'm doing. So that's good too. Do you feel connected with her? I do. Yeah. Actually the way I had a very spiritual and emotional experience when I was in Banff, Canada camping Hmm. and I woke up at like 5 a.m. after camping, my friend and I were backpacking. We're like hitchhiking through Canada. It was awesome. And I woke up at 5 a.m. like hearing this voice. I don't like share this stuff. I don't talk about spirituality. It's not my thing. But I heard this voice and I was just like, what is that? And I get up. It's 5 a.m. I start walking through the woods and I just start crying. Hmm. And like I had this super meta like connection with Mother Earth and my mother. And like it was this very powerful healing experience. So that was that was dope. Hmm. Has there been any other recurrences of, of such things? Not really. After that, it was pretty peaceful. What do you think that was? I don't know. What do you think? What's the first thing? Uh, the the thing that came up for me was I think my the, the fact that I didn't process it, mm. and the fact that I was hiking for miles and miles and miles and being in nature had a it it gave me time to process, but it also had this beneficial set of neuropsychological cascades that allowed me to process. I think that's what it was. Mm. I think the you know the the voice in my head was internal. I don't think it was God or anything like that, but it felt very spiritual at the time. I'm that's, willing to accept that it was spiritual. And that's what, what this is going outside of my scope of awareness, but I, I believe like the origins of EMDR, mm. you know, it's it, that lateral. Wasn't eye. it while walking through the woods and they yeah, tried exactly. to replicate yeah, that? Yeah, she was trying to replicate that. Oh my that gosh. Because as you're going through it, essentially you're, you're, you know, you're, you're mobilizing yourself mm-hmm. to safety. You're in this, also this visual flow that people like Dr. Huberman talk about. Yeah. And yeah, there's so much going on there. Yeah. So I wonder if in that context, you know, I'm under the illusion that our worlds strongly impact every aspect of us, you know, our thoughts, our feelings, our production of chemistry and all that stuff. And so if you're continually enclosed inside of a a room, a school, Mm -hmm. you know, your car, all the different boxes, you're kind of hunched into those positions and your your face is in the books and in the screens and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. it's probably not the most advantageous enriching environment it's not an enriching environment to go into a receptive kind of purgative type state Mm -hmm. you know and so being out in in mountains in this example i think you know it's one of those things that it's like i I truly absolutely a million percent stand behind nature therapy i think it is if you want to call it therapy you don't even need to call it you just say go outside and see what happens but when you're in that you know you're you're doing that lateral mobilization one of my favorite books is um last child in the woods Mm. it's all about this nature deficit disorder yeah exactly i feel that that. i feel this like tremendous loss when i haven't been in nature for weeks oh yeah it changes you man it's crazy yeah so that's powerful that you know, I, that's when I fell in love with backpacking and the outdoors. And I definitely need to get back to doing that. Mm. I've been so engrossed in like research and learning. So why more do you and, think that is though? Uh, why? Like, yeah, cause wh- you're, you're, you're more deeply obsessively involved with this stuff than, than most mm-hmm. people. And you've kind of, you've accelerated at a higher degree than, you know, most anybody that goes into topics of this sort. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? The effect of nature on the brain. 
Yeah, sure. Anything. Just topics in general. You're you're like an accelerated learner. Oh, I I wouldn't say that. I'm actually I struggle to learn. I'm not a good learner. Well, then you would work. I'm a really, very passionate. Work really hard. Then. I'm a passionate. Where learner, do you think yeah. that comes from? Why do you think that is? Do you think it's, uh, do you think it's compensation? Or do you my think it's dad compassion? really helped me with that in my childhood. When it was like I had a math teacher, like a fifth grade math teacher, like that literally told me because of my math performance, I will never amount to anything. <laughs> oh, fuck. In front of my parents. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> so that wasn't. I'm like, I'm gonna go back to my Pokemon cards if that's okay. Um, and my dad <laughs> really like taught me the strong work ethic mm. to like and my brother is so much naturally smarter than me and it comes so much easier and i with natural gifts comes weakness oh absolutely yeah, and i'm not it's... comparing but you know just familial in that sense i i really had to push and i still do that but i find it's much easier to push when you really care and it's for a purpose yeah i think so, i think being gifted is overrated totally i think being gifted is kind of like a handicap i think being talented in any ways definitely <laughs> Well, talent, it's a weird thing because it's something that you cultivate. You can work your ass off in order yeah. to cultivate it. I don't know that there's that many people. Typically, like the LeBron Jameses of the world, they're the perfect storm of being hella gifted with an insane work ethic. Yeah. But, or did they develop it? What do you mean? Did they did develop they it? Gifted with a work ethic? Or yeah, did both. they develop It's the a perfect storm. It's the yeah. genetics. I mean, LeBron James doesn't look like me or you. Right. He's a, a different species, mm-hmm. you know, and he has an insane work ethic. You know, so I think the compound. So I don't think there's anything against it's nature and nurture. Yeah, I don't have anything against talent. It's the even the concept of. I mean, I, I think being gifted is kind of a. It's kind of a contentious topic. The idea of being gifted. Do you think that that, that exists? It probably does. I mean, there's some people that. I mean, what is it, what is that thing called? Sorry, I'm talking so much. What is that called when you you whack your head and all of a sudden you get like Rain Man piano abilities? It's called a uh, concussive oh, enigmatic I, I something. I, yeah, I know what you're talking about, though. And so you can you can whack your head, I fall did. off your bike. I did you can whack, whack your head. This may have happened to you. Well, I Real wasn't. Talk. I actually never learned how to ride a bike. Okay, whatever. But you can <laughs> you can whack your head. I, I, I whacked my head chasing a giant bubble. So does that mean does that mean perhaps that we have access to like an infinitesimal amount of knowledge and skills? It's just a matter of we have to Hit cross the cro- yeah cross the wires right <laughs> for it to come out. Like what does that oh, mean man. for you to be able? Or it's maybe it's just math. Like you're able to understand pattern recognition if you whack your brain in the right way. Right. It, it, you know. Okay. So by no means do we want anyone to whack their brain to achieve anything. You know, what concussion I'm talking about, is serious. Though. I do. Yeah. When I sus- I, you know, I I have a lot of unanswered questions. I have a lot of hypotheses about my concussion. Mm. It was my left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That means your head. The front of my head on the left side, yeah, yeah above my Pretty eyebrow, yeah. just for those who you know want to look it up. Yeah, right. So, I am being cute. I know. You're, you're cute. That's fine. We're All a right. couple cute fellows in a sauna. Couple, Fucking put this on a calendar. Bunch of cutie pies in Come here. Come on, just talking about the brain. Jeez, I appreciate our dynamic. I do. I'm not yeah. hitting on you. That's how you know someone's hitting on you. They say I'm not hitting on you. We could have a sitcom, but you're not worth the time. Oof. See that the, the sitcom line. Jesus, so that's the drama that we could have. It could right, be a so dorsolateral prefrontal. Yeah, so I cracked my head open. Yeah, I would actually love to have a sitcom with you. Oh wow. Yeah. Jeez. That'd be fun. I feel uncomfortable. I really don't have the time. <laughs> um, so I cracked my head open, chasing a giant bubble. I was like, maybe that's why I have ADHD slash sort of Aspergery like symptoms. Mm. But those have been gifts in many ways. Mm. And well, also you- the the brain compensates, and those compensations that. They may manifest as strengths and, of course, weaknesses, but I dig what you're saying. Mm. Mm-hmm. Shit's mysterious. The brain is awesome. Science is cool. 
but I think it really, it's only a part of the whole experience. And it's from a science, scientific, I was going to say like scientism, but from a scientific perspective, I think we can limit ourselves with the potential. Yeah. And then also from like the flow state, mm -hmm. you know, I talked about this in the last episode with the mind pump guys, but the person that is just all flow state, like go experiential guy, it's easy for them to look back at the, the scientists and be like, oh, you don't even know about this experience. But I really feel like... Unless the, they release one study that confirms their bias. Right, exactly. That's true. Yeah. Which they hyper-focus on. Yeah, but within that, though, I really think what it is, is it's like we, by teaming up together and really being like inviting the scientists in and inviting the flow bros in and all that, I think that's when you really get the impact that you want. I agree. That's where we get the most. I agree. Most I think you, you can be far too clinical or far too real world. And it's once again, it's yin yang, man. It's about it's being in the middle. West shit. I think so. God dang it. All right. So we should wrap this thing up. Move in a variety of ways. Mm. Make it cognitively demanding sometimes, but not all the time. Yeah. If you feel you need to occupy a certain intensity or modality of exercise in a different way that you might be missing, probably do it and experiment and see how it affects you in your brain, your mood, your cognition, obviously your body. But I feel like you're giving people a lot of physical supplements mm -hmm. to the environment that has changed. Like we evolved for motor and cognitive to work together. And we evolved musculoskeletally in a lot of different ways too. And biomechanically, I feel like you know, movement professionals primarily address the physical, but we do. And when I say we, I mean, movement professionals and just the whole human race have the power to manipulate the brain as well with movement. And I'm learning a little bit about it. Yeah. And I think everyone should appreciate it and be interested in it because I find it a hell of a lot more interesting than fat loss. Yeah. There's a, I want to talk about depression really quick before mm -hmm. we, we end end. What are your thoughts of like inflammation in the brain and... Yeah, so there, you know, the the main uh, hypothesis of depression in psychiatry that spurred the development of depressive, you know, antidepressants was the dopamine hypothesis of um, of depression. Now it's really all about like the inflammation hypothesis of depression, but you know, there's a lot of psychiatrists and, and researchers that have shown that you know just giving someone turmeric or curcumin doesn't like heal people's depression. Hmm. But exercise, which has many different mechanisms, not just dopamine changes and not just inflammatory changes, a lot of different mechanisms, really has powerful effects on depression. Hmm. And I might have a couple you know, researchers that might slap me in the face for trying to simplify, but moderate intensity with a more emphasis on frequency seems to play a pretty big role. Yeah. And, and improving depressive outcomes. But I have a friend that just completed a systematic review showing that, you know, 2.8 times per week of yoga had a significant impact on depressive symptoms. So like three times a week of yoga, for well, instance. And all those things is just too hard to isolate because there's so many variables. There's community, there's showing up for something. You yeah. Know, there's, it's just there's showing a lot. up in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's sweating, there's all that stuff. But, but it, for those who might tend to overthink it, you know, just do something just do some two shit. to three times just a week at like a moderate intensity. Where it makes you feel good. If it makes yeah. you smile, do it more. That's right. You know, and there, there, but so the so last last thing is, I think it is very interesting coming back to this whole mind body. Maybe it would still be in the in the umbrella of embodied cognition. Maybe we venture beyond that. But when a person is de depressed, the the fancy term for it that I learned recently is that they call it psychomotor retardation. You go into this. Oh, thing. interesting. So it's like well, when you're in that place. You're just like there are cognitive aspects of you know mental illness or mental health. Like when you. Like, for example, there's a company called MindStrong Health 
that is literally cross-validating text messaging behavior with cognitive testing mm. and then relating that to predictive mental health mm. outcomes. Mm. So it's like, by the way someone uses their phone, we might be able to predict or diagnose that someone is depressed in the future. Like, that's just I crazy. That. I mean, then that's the funny thing with all that stuff is like, we see that because a, a computer finally catches up to being able to do it. Computers so, are great. They're so, good at But when you chess, say psychomotor, when we talk about like psychomotor response time, we're basically like the information entering the eyes, going through the brain, going out through the muscle to the finger. And like, that's a psychomotor response, mm. right? So I don't agree with the word retardation, but I think you mean slowing, right? That's the term Robert Sapolsky said. He's right. I'm not saying it's your term, whatever yeah. it is, but that psychomotor slowing perhaps yeah. might, you know, underlie a lot of changes in cognition that are, you know, probably due to negative changes in the brain, whether they be mood or mental health related or cognitively. In fact, for people undergoing cognitive decline, one of the first things that changes is response time or processing speed. Mm. This is also true in some populations with mental illnesses as well. So yeah, it's actually pretty powerful what you just said there, I think. Mm. You too, man. We're in it. We're doing the thing. Saying words into puffy microphone thing. I don't know. What are these called? Little cones? Uh, mouth marshmallows. Whatever. Anyways, yeah. where should people go from here? Where do people learn? You know, Google's a great place to start. No, you. Oh, me. Where do you find um, yourself? You know, I'm, I have a website, ryanglatt.com. That's cool, I guess. I have an Instagram, glatt, G-L-A-T-T dot brain health. I post things sometimes. Um, for those who are interested, uh, ideally those who are in the health or fitness professions, I have created a course uh, called the Brain Health Trainer Course, which is like the first ever course to teach about the comprehensive effects of exercise in the brain and like right. how to actually implement it into your practice and help clients or patients in this way. Is that for layman people? Not necessarily, it but it can be. Cool. Uh, it's mostly for people who are already facilitating exercise, health coaches, personal oh, yeah, trainers. Personal trainers but I've had some lay, lay people go through it as well and really enjoy it just because they're interested. Well, I'm sure there's tons of trainers listen to this so that'll be mm-hmm. that'll be a great thing so I, I really appreciate the various exercises and 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 more than that just the the perspective that you've kind of helped shift for me with my perception of exercise and, and movement coordination and all the what were we, the exercises were done the visio yeah the visual cognitive exercises cognitive, i think that stuff is so cool it's and, fascinating and, and so, for me as well yeah yeah and and um yeah so I've, I've been really enjoying that and we will post when i release this episode you can look over at line podcast instagram page and we will be posting some specific exercises for y'all that uh mr glatt they're fun himself and i yeah. did um, at one point. And so if people want to learn more about this course and these types of exercises or just want to learn about exercise in the brain, uh, they can go to www.brainhealthtrainer.com. Bam. Did that sound like a that sound That sounded legit. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan. Thank really, you for having me. I really me. appreciate it. This is a really fun conversation. I like sweating with you. I enjoy having these experiences with you. I enjoy you helping expand my mind. I enjoy you helping expand the listener's mind. I'm sweating balls. It's time to get out of this thing. I look forward to uh, continuing to be friends with you. (laughs) And at the very least, acquaintances. (laughs) Absolutely. At the very best, a sitcom. All right. Over and out, people. Thanks for tuning in. Pow. Pow. I hope y'all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Ryan is an absolute hoot and uh, really fun. He always teaches me something new every time we hang. So I'm glad that I got to share that with y'all. If you want to share some tidbits that you found extra special, extra helpful, 
you can do it on Instagram. Share it with me at Align Podcast. You can share it with Ryan. You can be found at Galat, G-A-L-A-T-T dot Brainhouse. We also did some videos that I will be posting on Instagram today, uh, today being Monday. So check that out if you're interested in learning how to support your cognitive well-being while exercising and sculpting those sweet buns of yours. We did some special exercises for y'all. So jump over to Align Podcast on the Instagram. You check that out. I find sharing this stuff very helpful, obviously, because it helps the podcast grow, but it's also supportive for you to be able to remember the information. So a little memory tool when you are trying to remember something, if you're writing it down, writing it down in general is going to be very supportive. Also beyond that, utilize colors. So if you got a notebook or something of the sort, we get some different highlighters, anything that will create a little bit more emotional stimulation is going to be supportive for you being able to retain information. So if there's some weird dorky neuroscience terms throughout this that you found interesting, perhaps relate those things back to memories that you already have. And uh, you can even weave a little tale or story incorporating those things. And uh, it's gonna be very helpful to start to create a little bit more emotional content around them. So you actually hold on to the information and all this stuff does not just stream through your mind like water through a sieve. I appreciate you guys tuning in and uh, I look forward to communicating with you next week with another fabulous conversation. Thanks again for reviews on iTunes. Thanks for grabbing the Align Method book. If you want to learn more about this stuff, uh, Ryan reviewed the book for me several times actually. And so we incorporated a lot of really geeky neuroscience bits in the Align Method book. Thanks for reviews on that on Amazon. Thanks for joining you. Love y'all. Peace out. See you next week. Bye.